0: I am thrilled with today's guest, uh, former FBI director uh, James Comey, uh, who's got a whole new life. Um, We're going to talk about his new novel, which breaks next week, Central Park West, a crime novel uh, that's getting amazing reviews. Uh, For people who are not seeing the video of this, I'm looking at a very different man. He's relaxed. He's in a crudex sweater. And it seems that uh, he's got a a new glow about him. Mr. Director, what a pleasure to have you on 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 Brand.
1: It's great to be on with you, Donnie. It's an honor, and I hope you're seeing the benefits of five or six years of sleep, uh, yoga, and a little low stress.
0: Good for you. Good for you. Uh, Let's get right into the book, because first of all, before we get into the book, you're 62. I'm somebody that kind of keeps reinventing myself. Give some advice out there to people who kind of at 60 feel, well, there's no new paths and whatnot. Give me the kind of genesis of how you kind of reinvented yourself to start to be a novelist, which is incredible.
1: Yeah I hope folks no matter what age they are will realize that look life is short we're so lucky to be alive try new stuff i mean don't do crazy things but but try new stuff it keeps you energized and makes life interesting i'm i'm nervous about writing a book cuz i want it to succeed cuz i want this to be my career i i always loved to write and was a journalist as a high school kid and a college kid And got away from it, obviously, because I was doing other things. But I got back to it because an editor of my nonfiction stuff said, man, you can write stories, you ought to try it. And the farther I got from government, the easier it was to think about that. And I gave it a shot and I fell in love with it. Harder than nonfiction, but more fun. And I love it so much. I want to do this till
0: I'm old and foolish. How do you even go? I nonfiction is one thing. How did you even know how to even attempt? I I take me kind of through the process. You never wrote a novel before. You have an idea in your head. Take me through kind of the arc of, okay, I got this idea. And obviously, a lot of it comes from your personal experience. This is a crime story. as is a young uh, assistant uh, DA prosecuting case, uh, a organized crime case, and how it kind of entwines with a, another case about a woman who's been framed uh, for killing the, her husband, who was the governor. So you're bringing out, and your daughter's experience, who's a, who's a, a ADA, a really fast-rising ADA in the Southern District, other than just kind of you have an experience in this area, take me through the craft of it. Yeah, a big
1: part of it was uh, dating well in college and then marrying her because my wife had read a tremendous amount of fiction and crime fiction and could steer me. First of all, she's a great story vision person. And then she could say, nah, it's not making sense. So uh, have in mind a story and then go and write it. And it was easy to write in a sense because I was writing from what I know, A mix of both back in time, nostalgia, and then thinking about my daughter, who, when I was writing this, was on her feet in the old federal courthouse in Manhattan, prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's partner in abusing young girls. And so I could think about my daughter, think about the work I had done, and just tell stories. That's the first thing. Second thing is, have people close to me who will tell me the truth. When I finished a draft of it, I found people who knew this world better than I. And I said, look, don't blow smoke up my butt. Tell me if this sucks. And if it doesn't suck, tell me in ways it could be better. And I was lucky to have those people and to listen to them. And that's how it worked out.
0: You met every morning with your wife. You would sit down and she would critique. And I'm sure probably, as you said, with no bullshit, what the work you had done the day and the night before.
1: Yeah. And I found a way to do it where it hurt me less uh, emotionally (laughs) because I had her, rather than tell me over coffee that I suck, do it on a Google doc. And so write in one of those little bubbles, comment bubbles, this isn't very good, or your character's voice is drifting, or I think you ought to think about a different way to tell this part of the story. And then I could go through the stages of denial. First of all, she's wrong. Right. Then reading it again (laughs) saying, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, she's right. Then when I saw her coffee the next day, I could say, you know, that was very helpful. Thank you for that. So that was the way the process was less uh, painful to my ego.
0: Two of my good friends wrote blurbs for your books. First one, Harlan Coben, who's one of my favorite guys in the world. I want to read that out loud. James Coben, James Comey's intimate knowledge of law enforcement makes Central Park West a winning legal thriller. But the book is so much more—an insider's account, memorable characters, a gripping plot, and breathless pacing—combined for a truly outstanding debut. One that announces a bold new talent in the mystery genre. Coming from Harlan Coben, who's prolific. I mean, that—that's—that's that's quite. Those kudos are quite impressive.
1: He is not only a great writer. He's well, you know this. He's a great person, the best, h- hilarious, thoughtful, kind, and so yeah. I'm I'm grateful that he thought that of it. I'm intimidated, obviously, right. and and told him I feel like you know, an incredible imposter. But again, knowing that people like that wouldn't BS me helped, and yeah. gives me. I'm not. Entirely optimistic, but made me cautiously optimistic.
0: Another amazing professional and delightful human being, another dear friend of mine, Nicole Wallace. I'm going to read it. I love this novel. Cannot put it down. Central Park West is a smart, nuanced legal thriller that truly delivers. It's a modern good guys versus bad guys story in which all the good guys are actually, we love this, strong, steely women. It's a smart, satisfying read that I cannot recommend more highly. And that's Nicole Wallace, of course, the the, uh, the, uh, host of Deadline. Tell me the, the kind of the essence of why the kind of women rule in this book. I, I've i written a book and one of my chapters in the book is what I call the female superiority doctrine that I think women are superior to men. And, and something tells me you kind of uh, are on, on that team.
1: Yeah, me too. I agree with your take. Nicole is one of my favorite people in the world. And she texted me that at the end, I think of night one, she said, I've read half this book already and I'm gonna read the second half tomorrow night. And she did. And she made that point that, her favorite thing was that I had found a protagonist and key characters who were female. It wasn't hard because I'm surrounded by strong, smart, thoughtful women, right? I've got four daughters who are tall, smart, strong women. One is a a leading prosecutor in Manhattan, but the others are amazing. And my wife isn't tall, but she's equally amazing. So that's, they have, I've been a lifetime project for them. And they've luckily (laughs) been patient with me and, I, I, they constantly find ways for me to improve, and that's one of the great things that I've, I. That's so lucky to be with them. I,
0: I share that with you. I have three daughters uh, who are amazing. I have assistants who are my family, who are who are women. Uh, not, my previous life, I ran an ad agency. Seven of my nine partners were women. Uh, so I've always been propped up and surrounded by really strong, smart women, and recognize my own warts and shortcomings. And if I don't recognize them on a daily basis, they they quickly remind me.
1: It's <laughs> exactly right. And look, it's painful to be wrong and, and short-sighted and all the things that I can be and am. But what a gift to be surrounded by people who love you enough to tell you the truth. And so it's been the joy of my life and that, that I could think of them in writing this and, and involve them literally in the critiquing is, a, is just a gift.
0: I opened the podcast by talking about, how, for people who can't see, you look like a different man. You are smiling. You are relaxed. Uh, talk about just life in general now as a private citizen and a novelist versus somebody who was in the center of the universe uh, making decisions that have have impacted who we are as a society, the weight of running the FBI, the weight of running the Southern District. And I use those that word because you do have the world on your shoulders. And it's just talk to me just how you feel differently now.
1: Yeah, the weight is the right way to say it. The FBI job never leaves you. It's, it's 24 hours a day, even when you're asleep, because there are people in your house. There's protecting you. There's a secure room in your house where things you might have to read or conversations you might have to have. It just sits there silently reminding you that the job is still here. And so it's, it's nonstop. I tried very hard to be disciplined about sleep and exercise but you can't you just can't get enough of it the way you can in a after you get after you get fired but the job weighs on you and also in ways on ways on me because of my personality Harlan coben said this about himself to me one time that he said I'm a socially adept introvert <laughs> and and so am I that I can do the speeches and meeting 500 fbi employees and shaking everybody's hand But then I need to go stare at a tree and be alone. And it's hard to find those spaces. And so, look, getting fired was painful in a number of ways. But I've drawn chalk on the driveway 2 p.m. with my grandkids, something I wouldn't have gotten to do if I was still FBI director. And that seems silly. But I've been able to taste and hold on to a part of life that I would have missed. And obviously, gotten a lot more sleep and exercise, so it's been it's been really good for me physically and emotionally to be away from some of that. I grieve some of the things I didn't get to do, but it, it's the weight is gone in a in a way that maybe I hadn't fully anticipated.
0: What do you grieve that you didn't get to do?
1: The FBI needed to change its face literally. That we when I became director, the number of, the percentage of agents who were non-Hispanic Caucasian white agents had been growing steadily for a decade. And the number terrified me when I got there we were 82% white and, and static in terms of attracting female agents. And so I told the whole organization, that is a threat. There's a moral imperative there, but it's a threat to our effectiveness in a country mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. getting more diverse, more complicated, in my view, more wonderful. Yeah. But if we're going to protect this country, we got to get people to join here who wouldn't have thought of us. And so that was the that was my top priority and I spent every day working on that and the, actually the day I got fired I was in LA that night to to meet with 750 age uh, engineers MBAs lawyers of color men and women and I was going to walk out of that room with half of them applying to be special agents of the FBI because I'd done it around the country and mm-hmm. I know the talent is there and they want to be part of something with moral content and I didn't get to that meeting because I got fired so really a A small piece of what I didn't get to finish that I grieve about. And that's not something the public notices or knows, but that's what mattered to me.
0: I want to talk to you about a new, really cool, super healthy, super delicious meal service called Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you get fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You get two-minute wheels, fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and heat whenever you are, pancakes, smoothies, uh, no prep, no mess meals. Factors meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prep and cooking or cleanup needed. It's flexible for your schedule. Um, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for a fast premium option with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So stop doing takeout. These are meals that are completely put together for you. All you gotta do is heat them up. They'll be delivered. Head to FactorMeals.com/Donny50. And use code Donnie50 to get 50% off. That's code Donny 50 at factormeals.com slash Donnie50 to get 50% off. Mine are coming to me next week. I can't wait to try them. I hear great things about them. But Factor, this is good stuff. It tastes great. It's easy to use. It's healthy. I really, really, I really endorse it. Factor, go get them. You mentioned the word imposter before, and you, you're the director of the FBI. Do you ever kind of say to yourself, Jesus, how am I doing? Isn't there somebody more equipped to do that? I mean, because most very successful people, somewhere in that, have, and they do the job. But, um, you know, I even just as a guy on TV, I'm always saying, like, isn't there somebody more equipped to be analyzing this than me? And the answer is no. But talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, And if you don't have that feeling, you're an incredible jerk and you shouldn't be in a leadership role. I can remember the first time I sat in the Oval Office and I looked around at the chairs. I didn't have to speak in that meeting. And I thought, oh my God, it's just us. Yeah. If the, if the American people only knew. I mean, these are talented people, but what the hell am I doing here? And I remember at FBI, I'd walk into a room and people would stand and I'd want to look around behind me saying, who, who, who just came, came in? For? Yeah. And, and they'd be nervous when they spoke to me. And my wife captured it. She said, they're not standing for you. They're not nervous because you call them. It's the role. And what you need to do is use the role, get over your discomfort. Because one way you can deal with that is sort of shrink a little bit. She said, get over your discomfort and use the role for good. You can make, you can call people who are sick. You can ask about their families and that takes you five seconds, but the role means something deeply important to people. So use it for good. And so I, I got comfortable with it. Not that I ever felt like I deserved to be in a place, but I had this gift and I could use it to try and touch people in a good way that had nothing to do with who I was.
0: You know, I realized that at the imposter thing and, and how it, it, not only yourself, but other people, I remember I, I got hired to work on the Clinton ad campaign in 92. And I was sitting the night before I was going to meet the future president. I was sitting at a rib joint next to, uh, Stephanopoulos at the time, James Carville, Mandy Grunwald, Stingray, I mean, kind of the inner circle that was going to be running the country if you got elected. And I remember listening to the conversation and going, okay, they're smart. No geniuses there. Like, I mean, not like they, they, what we forget is the people who are running the world are just people, and it's that simple. And so you saw that front, not only in terms of looking in the mirror, but front and center as you dealt with the, the most powerful people in the world.
1: Yeah, and I... And not all people think of it the way you do and and I can remember looking at people in positions both in the private sector and in the public who appeared not to realize right that they came into this life you know go in the bathroom in their pants and they're going to go out the same way they don't they don't appear to realize that we all are people that some they deal with that discomfort of the imposter complex by pushing the imposter part down and those are the people that bug me the most.
0: Yeah. Hey, let, let me get your take on some current events. Obviously, we have a president who uh, this seems to be four involved in four legal cases. One of them is, he's already been indicted in. I'd love you, of to get some inside baseball, some handicapped Uh First, the New York case that a lot of people kind of are going is ticky-tack and shouldn't have been the first case. Not that the four cases are going to be coordinating with each other. Talk to me about your take and how you see that playing out as far as his uh, falsifying business records in the Stormy Daniels case.
1: Yeah, that bit about... That you know, they should have been sequenced differently, as you said. <laughs> shows that folks don't understand. Look, yeah, the Manhattan DA doesn't sequence with anybody. Yeah. I mean, when I was the U.S. attorney next door, part of getting the part of being effective was trying to build a relationship with those folks. They shouldn't coordinate. They don't sequence. To my mind, I don't have a particular view on the case, but. What's wonderful about it is this is what the rule of law looks like, right? A DA takes evidence to a grand jury, they obtain a charge, they provide discovery to the defendant who gets a counsel, and then they appear in court. And so this is, I think, a great object lesson for the American people of this is how it works. And it's particularly useful lesson in the case of a guy who's tried to take a flamethrower to the rule of law at all levels in the country. And so I don't know how the case will turn out, but to my mind, it's a reminder. The rule of law stands in America, no matter who you are. And that's a great thing.
0: Uh, Ty Cobb, who's Trump's former attorney, came out, I think it was yesterday, the day before yesterday, and basically said the documents case, which most people believe is kind of the, from a legal point of view, when you listen to legal pundits, the the most kind of potential slam dunk case, he literally said that he believes Trump's going to end up in jail. I'd love your thoughts.
1: I think that's, again, I only know what I see from the outside, and I know from doing investigations that you never get a clear view from the outside. But based on what I can see, I agree with the assessment. That's the most likely case to be charged because it's the one that offers the fewest complications in proving Trump's state of mind, which is a challenge for any prosecutor because his mind I imagine inside a a Super Bowl bouncing around, boing, 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 boing. (laughs) And so proving at any moment what he's thinking when even he may not know what he's thinking is a real challenge. There, it's cleaner, uh, easier, a a more confined factual universe. And so I would bet that that's the most likely. Now, how likely? I don't know at at this point. I think it's more likely than before the Manhattan DA charged him because I do think there was this cultural Rubicon with respect to charging a former president that was crossed in the Manhattan case. And so I think it makes it more likely that the Justice Department and the special counsel will charge him. I, I don't know how to handicap it, but I think it's, if I were his lawyers, I'd be thinking it is a significant possibility, a significant likelihood that they will charge him.
0: As a legal novice, I go to the Georgia case and I hear the phone call where he says, find me 11,000 votes or whatever the, the number was, the exact number. So to me, not being a lawyer, but I go, wow, that really seems like a smoking gun there. that's a, Talk to me about that case.
1: Again, from the outside, I don't see it that way because I see it open to the defendant, in that case, Donald Trump, to say, I honestly believed that the election had been stolen in Georgia and our margin of defeat was 11,000, whatever. So of course- <laughs> I I think we could have found 50 or 60,000 votes, but all I needed to find were 11,000. And so that's why I said it that way. I mean, Donald Trump really is, I thought I was being too dramatic when I first, my first impression of him was as a mob boss, but he really is careful to speak in a way. He's never going to tell you he's going to burn down your shop. He's going to say, well, you have a really nice shop. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. I hope you have insurance. So what did he mean by that? So I, that's my worry about the Georgia case and its strength, if they were to charge Trump.
0: Go back to your first interaction with, with the president, with the then president.
1: It was in a conference room, first week of January 2017, when we were there at President Obama's direction to brief him on the intelligence community's assessment of Russian interference. And we sat in a uh, the conference room with floor-to-ceiling gold Curtains to try and make it closer to the, an appropriate classified facility. I still didn't think it was the appropriate place to be talking about that, but that's what the president ordered, and so we briefed him. And the details of that weren't what struck me. What struck me was I kept having this reaction to him, where the image of the Cosa Nostra cases I had done <laughs> and the boss kept popping into my head, and I and I had a conversation in my own head where I was like, "Stop, stop! You're being dramatic." What but there was something triggered in my head by the way he acted, the way his followers acted that triggered that comparison in my head. And honestly, as I look back now, it was not uh, overly dramatic. Something in my my brain was picking up signals that it turned out, I think, to be pretty close to what it was.
0: You're obviously a man with a great moral compass, and you're a man of service, and you dedicated your life to this country. And, and we're just meeting for the first time, but I could sense what a decent human being you are. Obviously, quote unquote, the decision, uh, the email decision. This is something you live with every day. You've been asked about a million times. You made a decision to uh, send a letter to Congress that they were going to, some new emails from Hillary Clinton that many believe will never know this, but had impacted the election and gave the presidency to Donald Trump. You've watched, you watched the four years, you watched even since he's been there, the, the havoc that this cruel man has wrecked on this country how how do you what do you say to yourself how do you come to terms with it um any monday morning quarterbacking now on that and this is this is something that has defined your life in many many ways
1: yeah no it definitely has i look watching what donald trump is and has done just deepens it, the pain in a sense that i i deeply regret <laughs> that yeah. we were involved. And so it has been an occasion for me a thousand times to go back and review the decisions. And I, the honest answer is, I don't think, given what I knew then, I could have done something different. I really think that decision, if people study, it'll stand the test of time. But look, it just totally sucked. I mean, both yeah. doors led to hell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our yeah. two choices. So I don't say something that we've discovered tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of emails that including ones from the BlackBerry device that we had never found. And my team's telling me the result might change and they can't finish the review before the election. And I've told the American people, this is over. And I fought the Republicans saying, no, 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 there's no there there. You can go and vote knowing the FBI looked at this. This thing is done. Trust us. Now I know that's not true. And I don't say something.
0: Yeah. You were fucked wow. either way. You were fucked. Wow. Either way. Yeah. And yeah. so
1: look, I, I said people- that on the
0: air at the time. I, I mean, I said you, I, I mean, a lot of people were came against you. A lot of people were, I was like, I, I, this is one where you can't win either way. I mean, you, you yeah, can't.
1: I, and I felt it at the time. And I knew at the time that even people of good faith were never going to see the decision the way we see it. I told my team this because they'll always be looking back down the path we chose towards the forking in the path. And so I knew that at the time, but look, I'm proud of the way the decision was made, the things we thought about. And and I, people have asked me, well, should you have considered? Surely you didn't Donald Trump would be a good president, then shouldn't you have done something to stop that? And my reaction is: you don't want to live in a country where the FBI director does that. Yeah. But of course I wasn't trying to help elect Donald Trump, I wasn't trying to hurt Hillary Clinton. Just as in investigating Trump, we weren't trying to, to hurt Clinton, help Clinton, help Trump. We just we really didn't want to be involved. But it it so look, it's very painful. I I hope we had no impact. And sometimes I console myself that watching the polls tighten in 2020 as the days tick down, watching it understate Trump's support and I was home in my pajamas in 2020. Maybe someone will show that it really didn't have an impact, but the truth is, we assumed we might have an impact either way, and we had to try and make the best decision and and so that's still how I think about it.
0: As you watch the years tick by and you watched the days of Trump and, and the uh, atrocities and and, and you watched January 6th, was it, being that you could have gone down two roads, there had to be a piece of you that said, you know, shit, I know the FBI shouldn't have made it, but I could, the country might've been in a better place had I made a different decision.
1: Yeah. I've asked myself that many times. If I could go back in time, should I have done what I thought was the wrong thing for the FBI and, considering the values of the institution I led because of the greater good? I've asked myself that a lot of times. And the answer is, I hope I would have the courage not to do that if I could go back in time. Because, again, you you don't want to live in a country where the FBI yeah. director is saying, you know who I think should be president? First of all, because it's inconsistent with the role. But you might have a director who would have a very different view of yeah. who should be president and might very much want Trump to be president. And that path, I think, leads to the destruction of any independence in our law enforcement. And so I would hope I'd have the courage not to do that, but I've asked myself that same question.
0: Take me through the night before, you with your wife, obviously, what you talk to your wife about everything, just as a human, how you were making that decision. You know, like you you just, it's such an earth shattering decision. I'd love to just kind of be in your home with you and your wife and just kind of think just getting inside your head at that moment.
1: Yeah, I was really struggling because I actually could see the decision clearly that I actually, it sounds like a weird thing for me to say, I actually don't think it was a close call. There were two doors that led to hell and I couldn't choose the other one. But I also knew I had baked in, this would be really bad for me personally. The other decision would have been much better for me personally. Yeah. But I actually, <clears throat> I don't remember worrying about that. I remember thinking, oh my God, this is going to hurt the FBI. And and so I remember that weighing on me. And I don't remember a lot of conversation about the merits of the conversation, of the decision with Patrice. I just remember her saying, look, I get it. Why does it have to be you? And- <laughs> And I I remember saying to her at the time, look, I <laughs> I had my chief of staff tell the attorney general's chief of staff, here's what he thinks has to be done. But he would welcome a conversation with his boss, the attorney general. And the message came back, she does not wish to speak to him. And so I also felt like, oh, God, they're yeah. just going to let me take this yeah. hit. Yeah. And so I think that was also weighing on Patrice. That's what she meant. Like, why does it have to be mm-hmm. you? Yeah. And you know this this uh, show called the Comey Rule. It's not my movie, but sure. the the guy who wrote it did a job that surprised me of capturing the pain of my family in a way that I don't think I had fully appreciated. You're so in the moment that you don't really think about what they're going through, and I started crying watching that movie because all of a sudden I could see you fool. You didn't see what this was doing to the people around you. Yeah. So Jennifer Ely, the actor, captures my wife in eerie ways, but she captured the emotion that I wasn't fully seeing. Because honestly, as much as I love her, it wasn't relevant, right? I, I had this decision I had to make, but she had this pain of knowing it might influence the election. She very much wanted first woman president, to totally get. And also this sense that my husband is in the middle of this and that empathy that makes women such gifted leaders and why you and I feel the same way about, about women being better than us. But that empathy for the country, for me, was causing her a lot of pain that I don't think I've fully got, and so I, I don't think I can see that moment clearly except in hindsight. And that movie helped me see it, believe it or not. I'm
0: gonna just ask a wacky question that's off topic and just something on very personal. As a five foot ten guy, how's it being six eight? Talk to me about the pros and cons because I'm fucking jealous as hell. <laughs> Here, here's the weird thing. In my
1: mind's eye, I'm the same height as you. Okay. Because I grew so late. I, I got my driver's license in New Jersey at Christmas time of my senior year of high school, and I was 5'11 on my driver's license. Oh, wow. Wow. And so I didn't grow. I was a year young for my grade as well because of the quirks. I was a New Yorker as a kid and the quirks of New York kindergarten deadlines. So I was 16 and middle of my senior year of high school, and I was 5'11. So, because I grew so late, my sense of self,
0: yeah, I'm actually
1: not a tall guy in my yeah. sense of self. And I, I'll look sometimes at pictures and say, holy crap, who's that giraffe? Right. <laughs> so, it's weird. It's, a, again, coaching from my family. They've taught me that, no, but you are that tall, dear. Right. And so, be careful how you stand. Be careful how you move because, especially talking to juries, don't get too close to the jury rail. I remember Patrice yeah. one time telling me, "And stop walking back and forth. You look like a giraffe in heat. Right. Stand, <laughs> stand still. Step back, because remember, you are really this tall."
0: Um, getting back to the book, I love that. By the way, uh, you working on your next one already? Yeah, I finished
1: a draft. It's out for the brutal feedback from loved ones, and because I, I, I have imagined, and Patrice helps me imagine a trilogy based in New York. And so the lead character, Nora Carleton will be back. And it, it's going to shift to another world that I know well. I worked at the world's largest hedge fund for three years. And so it's based in that kind of world. And I hope folks will enjoy being shown the inside of a place uh, like that kind of world.
0: Well, Mr. Director, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm a big fan. Uh, I appreciate your candor. I am happy for you to seeing your joy and relief and... Uh, Uh, calm in your new life. The book, which breaks uh, May 30th, is Central Park West, a crime novel. I am predicting a New York Times number one bestseller. I'm going to go there that far. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: It's great to be with you. I admire what you do too, Donnie. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks, buddy. You stay well.
1: Okay, take care.